Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for your holy Shabbat, for this time that you've given us to worship you, to interact as a mishpacha, as a family, and as a community, united in your presence, united in your ruach, united in the blood of Messiah. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, and it be your word heard and received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose, that you will breathe new life into our mishpacha, that you will breathe uh, a renewal of your ruach, kodesh, as we dig into your word today, and that we will recognize the truth of your word placed before us. B'Shem Yishua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen, amen and Amen. All right, so today the message is going to be a little bit different uh, because we're entering into an interesting time period in the Hebrew calendar. Uh, so, so I'm going to kind of dispel a lot of information to you, uh, as well as kind of give you a snapshot of what the next several weeks are going to look like in terms of the message. Uh, and then I'm also going to fit a message in all of that. It'll all work, trust me, uh, I think. Uh, but uh, but with that said, uh, I just want to talk to you today. Like I said, it's Parsha Devarim, which is the very first Parsha of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, the, or as I like to call the book that should have never been. Uh, because if we had simply gone and taken the land instead of being afraid of the supposed giants that we saw before us, then we would have never needed the book of Deuteronomy. But instead, we spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Deuteronomy reminds us of uh, all that the Lord said and did for Israel in the wilderness, as well as all that we did and said against the Lord in the wilderness. Um, so we're in Deuteronomy, the book that should have never been, and moving forward. Now, with that said, this Parsha always falls at a very specific time. Granted, all of the Parsha would fall at a very specific time on the Hebrew calendar. Ignoring the obvious in that respect, in that regard, this Parsha always falls at a very specific time every year on the Hebrew calendar. It falls right at and or before, immediately before, a day on the Hebrew calendar known as Tisha B'Av, or the ninth of Av. Uh, Tisha B'Av is, uh, in the modern Jewish world, what we call the Jewish 9-11. Couldn't have called it that before 9-11 because it didn't make sense, but now we can call it the Jewish 9-11, and most people will go, oh, horrible atrocity, gotcha, I'm there with you. Uh, Tisha B'Av is the 9-11 is the, the of Judaism, but instead of only once, it happened over and over and over and over and over again in Jewish history. Uh, Tisha B'Av is a day in which very often in or very religious Jewish communities, many people don't go to work, they don't leave their house, they stay home with their family where they can kind of keep tabs on where their family are uh, and things like this because there's always this this fear of when's the next boot going to drop? When's the next big thing going to happen? Because so many horrendous things have in fact occurred on Tisha B'Av throughout Jewish history or throughout history itself. Um, Tisha B'Av is, uh, is a very uh, solemn and, and mournful time period or day on the Hebrew calendar. Uh, and in particular, it's traditionally a fast day. Uh, Today is actually Tisha B'Av on the Hebrew calendar, but because it is a, uh, a traditional ban against fasting on Shabbat, because Shabbat is supposed to be a rejoicing time, uh, the, now Yom Kippur is also a Shabbat, we fast on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur but it's not the weekly Shabbat. Uh, and so in, in Judaism, the tradition is to fast on Tisha B'Av, but if it falls on weekly Shabbat, you fast the next day. Uh, and so you actually end up fasting on the 10th of Av instead of the 9th of Av. Uh, but we fast as a means of uh, kind of 
realigning our thought process and, and beginning this, this season of introspection into uh, our relationship with the Lord and how we live our lives and whether or not we are in fact striving to live our lives for the Lord as opposed to for ourselves. Three weeks before Tishbab is the 17th of Tammuz. Uh, the 17th of Tammuz is the day on the Hebrew calendar that the Roman armies breached the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and so it has become, and a few other things have occurred there too, but the, the three weeks have been called the three weeks of mourning as we mourn the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, building up to the destruction of the temple. Uh, and then from there out, we have what are called the seven weeks of consolation, where we read the seven messages of Isaiah or the seven messages of consolation, which are in essence Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60. These are our Haftorot Parshot, our Haftorot Parshot for the seven weeks between Tishbaab and Rosh Hashanah. All right, so I threw a lot of words out there. Hopefully some of those absorbed. If they did not, go back and watch the video later. Listen to the podcast. You'll catch on. There's a lot of information that I am spewing at the moment. Uh, so Tishbab is this huge day of mourning. So just to give you some foundational groundwork on why it's a day of mourning and why it's so important. And in particular, why this Parsha falling immediately before or at Tishbab is so important for us to recognize. Uh, I'm going to run through a synoptic list or a synop uh, synopsis list of the some of the events that have occurred at Tishbab historically. There's a lot more than this. This is just a, a short list. Uh, so in the Hebrew year 2448 or 1312 uh, BCE, the 10 spies returned from 40 days in Israel with an evil report of the promised land. The people of Israel believed the evil report and because of which we refused to go into the promised land and take the possession, uh, take possession of God's promises for us. In turn, God made us wander in the wilderness for ultimately 40 years and an entire generation of the people of Israel died out in the wilderness in preparation for the second generation to go in. So that's where all things began to decline rapidly on Tishbab. So on Tishbab, the ninth of Ab on the Hebrew calendar is the day that the 10 spies uh, brought back an evil report. There were 12 spies, only two, Joshua and Caleb, brought a good report. We move forward almost a thousand years, just short of that, at about 900 and change years. In the year 3340, on the Hebrew calendar, 421 before Common Era. The destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians uh, was uh, occurred on this particular day. So the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians on Tishbab, right? Very important that we start to understand that. Now, not only was the first temple destroyed on Tishbab, it's almost like God wants us to, to keep this date in mind. Not only was the first temple destroyed on Tishbab, but in the year 70 Common Era, uh, which was 3830 on the, uh, the Hebrew calendar, uh, in the, the, the year 70 Common Era, uh, the second temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire. All right? So three weeks predicating that on the 17th of Tammuz, the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem, and on the 9th of Ab, three weeks later, they destroyed the temple. So now, not only the 10 spies brought back a Libra report, but both temples were destroyed on the exact same day. Coincidence? I think not. You know, one time maybe. Three times probably should keep alert. God's trying to tell us something here. Uh, so then we continue to move forward. In the year 132 Common Era, the Bar Kokhba revolt was crushed 
Uh, then we move forward, 133, Turnus Rufus plows the site of the temple uh, and builds a, a Roman pagan city over the site of Jerusalem. And the plowing of the, the temple grounds occurred on Tisha B'Av. We go forward to 1095 or 1095 uh, in Common Era, moving a little more modern. The first crusade was declared by Perp Urban II. Urban II. Uh, 10,000 Jewish people were killed during the first crusade. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, the crusaders, they were going to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. Yeah, that was their, their, their thought. But along the way, they were slaughtering Jewish villages as a means of practicing warfare. Uh, because the Jews killed Christ was their perspective. Uh, in 1290, uh, the expulsion, the first expulsion of Jews from England occurred on Tishbaab. In 1492, uh, the Inquisition in Spain and Portugal began. It was on Tishbaab on the Hebrew calendar in the year 1492, common era, that every Jewish person had to be out of uh, the Spanish Empire or they were going to be slaughtered. Uh, or they had to convert, but ultimately uh, every Jewish person had to be gone or convert uh, by Tishbab on 1492. Uh, as a, a, a side statement that I, I kind of jokingly made this statement earlier, uh, a lot of people don't realize that Christopher Columbus was a Morano or a crypto-Jew. He was uh, uh, from a Jewish family that had converted to Catholicism to save their life and still kind of in some ways or another held on to Jewish tradition, but were ex externally Catholic. Uh, and so there's a lot of historical theory that it's probable that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue with ships filled with Jews um, as they were trying to leave Spain. Um, so uh, it's very well likely that that was the case. Uh, in 1914, so now we're really moving forward. We're into the 1900s. In 1914, uh, Britain and Russia declared war on Germany, and the First World War begins on Tisha B'Av. In 1942, the deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka concentration camp began on Tisha B'Av. In 1989, Iraq walks out of talks with Kuwait, which ultimately was a problem for Israel, uh, as some other things occurred from there. And in 1994, uh, there was a deadly, uh, tremendously deadly bombing uh, of the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, which killed 86 people and wounded some other 300 um, in Argentina, all on Tishbab. So. I say all of that to say Tishbab is important. The Lord is trying to tell us something. This is not a omen. This is not a bad luck charm. This is not, you know, anything along those lines. Tishbab is a day that the Lord has used ever since the, the evil report of the ten spies to get Israel's attention, to get the Jewish people's attention. That's not to say that these things that occurred in the modern era were at the hand of God, as was the Babylonian captivity and Israel being driven out of the land. But that these things occur at this exact time period continually uh, because the Lord is trying to make sure we are aware of the things that are happening. All of these bad things, especially the, the, the destruction of the temple, occurred because of Israel's sins. Right? Israel was cast out of the, the promised land and into battling in captivity for 70 years because of their sin. Right? The, Roman, the Roman destruction of the temple and the plowing of Jerusalem was because of Israel's sin, because we turned our back on the Lord. Uh, so it's really important that we recognize these things. So it's important that we understand that the, this Parsha, the Reem, falls at this very specific time period uh, leading up to and right at Tisha B'Av because the Lord is trying to remind us of how we ended up in this scenario, how we ended up in this, this uh, uh, problematic period.
So in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, and the Arabah opposite uh, Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazarot, and Di Zahab. Um, just as a, a side note here, this first verse, uh, it, the, the uh, sages tell us it has been noted that the structure, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading the wrong note here. That's a really interesting one, but it has nothing to do with this. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the sages in the Mishnah tell us uh, some really interesting things about this, uh, that the numerous places named uh, here in verse 1 are not necessarily landmarks or geographical locations, uh, but rather words of Musar or rebuke by Moses to the people of Israel. That is, instead of detailing this, their sin outright, he alluded to them with code words. Rather than saying what the sin was, he alluded to them by mentioning, in essence, the area that these sins occurred. So when he says, in the desert, uh, that is the time that they complained, if only we would die, would have died in the desert, in Exodus 17.3. In the plain, that is their most recent sin with the Moabite woman, uh, and Baal Peor, in the plains of Moab, in Numbers 25. Opposite Suf, uh, the, or Moz, uh, Mosuf, opposite Suf, that is the complaint of Israel at the shores of Yam Suf, at the start of the great exodus from Egypt, uh, in Paran. That is the sin of the spies who were dispatched to Paran in Numbers 13, Tophel and Levan. Uh, that is their li uh, libeling the white manna, uh, the Manhu in Numbers 21.5. Hatzerot, uh, uh, this is the uh, where Korach's mutiny against Moses took place. And Dizahav, um, or, uh, which can also translate to too much gold, uh, is the sin of the golden calf. So in this first verse, there are these kind of geogra geographical hints. But it's got less to do with the location, more to do with what Israel did in those locations. Does it make sense? It's got less to do with the actual place and more to do with Israel's actions or sins in that place. Moving down to verse 3. Now Moses spoke to Israel according to all Adonai and commanded him for them in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, after he had struck down Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Hashbon, and Ad, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtarot and Edrei. Uh, across the Jordan, the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this Torah, saying, Adonai, our God, spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn, journey on, enter the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabah, the hill country, the lowland, the Negev, the, and by the seashore, the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I've set the land before you. Enter and possess the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. Uh, so the Lord tells Israel, hey, uh, now, at this point, Moses is speaking again to the second generation. They're at the shores of the Jordan. They're overlooking the promised land. He's speaking to the second generation of Israel. And he's reminding Israel of everything that their forefathers did. And he's saying, listen, and, and we were here when the Lord said, go and take the land. You've been in the mountain too long. You've been in the wilderness. Go and take the land. And you refuse to do so. But he says, the Lord said, enter and possess, this is verse 8, enter and possess the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. And he's reminding, Moses is reminding the second generation, look, all you got to do is go take it. It's already yours. The Lord has already given it to you. Don't be like your forefathers who uh, ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe in the promises of God, because they didn't wholeheartedly believe in what the Lord has already done. Go in and take the land because it is yours and it has already been given to you. We go to verse 19. 
Then we journeyed from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as Adonai your God commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. I said that you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which Adonai our God is giving to us. See, Adonai your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as Adonai, God of your forefathers, has promised you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Right out the gate, Moses is warned, reminding him, do not be afraid and discouraged. So although he is talking to the second generation about what occurred with the first generation, he's doing it to encourage the second generation to not make the same mistakes of the first. Verse 22, then all of you came near to me and said, let's send men ahead of us to explore the land for us and bring us back word about the, where, the way we should go up in the cities we will enter. The idea seemed good to me, so I took 12 men from among you, one from each tribe. They turned up and went to the hill country, and they came uh, to the Wadiya Eskol and spied it out. They took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us. They also brought back word to us and said, God, a good is the land that Adonai our God is giving to us. Yet you should not go, would not go up, but rebelled against the command of Adonai your God in your tents. You grumbled and said, because Adonai hates us, he has brought us out of, from the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going? Our brothers have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are greater and fortified up to the heavens. Besides, we have seen the children of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, don't tremble or be afraid of them. Adonai, your God, who goes before you, he himself will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your own eyes. And in the wilderness, where you saw how Adonai, your God, carried you as a man carries his son, everywhere you went until you came to this place. Yet for all of this, you did not trust in Adonai, your God, the one who goes before you on the way to scout out the place for you to camp. And to show you the way you should go in fire by night and the cloud by day. So he tells the first generation, the second generation, uh, the first generation refused to take the promised land. Uh, and in spite of everything that he said, continually saying, do not be afraid, do not tremble, do not bow down, do not back down. Go and take the land that the Lord has already given to you. He says, your forefathers refused to do so because they were afraid of what they heard as opposed to what the Lord promised. Uh, and so we end up seeing, and he reminds them, uh, the, the second generation that they spend the 40 years in the wilderness and everything that goes on, and that only Joshua and Caleb were able to go into the promised land and so on and so forth. So as all of this is going on, uh, uh, it's important for us to understand that this parshat falls at this period of time because it was on this day, Tisha B'Av, that the spies brought back the evil report that caused all of this to occur. That caused us to have the book of Deuteronomy in the first place, the book that should have never been. It was because of the evil report of the ten spies that we spent 40 years in the wilderness. It was because of the evil report of the ten spies and the nation of Israel's willingness to believe those words as opposed to the words of God that we ended up not taking possession of the land when we should have. And he's reminding the second generation not to make the same mistake again. And this Parsha falls on or before Tisha B'Av, right before Tisha B'Av, every single year. As we are remembering the ten spies, the destruction of the temples because of our doing exactly what our forefathers did in the wilderness. And so on and so forth. It falls at this point in time to remind us that in spite of all of that. Let us not get wrapped up in the sins. Let us not get wrapped up in the mistakes. Let us not get wrapped up in the evil reports. Let us not get wrapped up in the fear. Let us not get wrapped up in the trepidation. Let us not get wrapped up in the reality that the world around us looks way bigger than we could ever deal with. 
but recognize that our God is greater than anything that could befall in front of us. That our God's promises are already given to us. We just have to take possession of them. It is not a name it, claim it reality. It is that the Lord has already given it, and it is our job to walk in it. The nation of Israel heard the spies say, the land is exactly as the Lord said. Here is the proof. And the nation of Israel said, ah, but we can't handle it. They're, they're too big. They're too strong. Fortified cities. We can't handle this. We're not good at war. But the Lord had already given them weapons. They had the weapons of the armies of Israel, of Egypt rather. As they left Egypt, they had Egypt's weapons with them. They already had armories. They already had an army of 600 plus thousand men. All they had to do was go and take possession. And then interestingly enough, we move into the book of Joshua and we recognize that Israel didn't have to lift a finger for the first several battles. That the Lord literally fought for them as Moses said he would. And so as we come to this Parsha right at or right before Tisha B'Av, we're reminded of all of the things that transpired post the spies' evil report. So that as we're contemplating and remembering the events of the destruction of the temples and everything that happened since then, we recognize that all we have to do is return. All we have to do is walk faithfully in the truth and the promises of the Lord. Right? It's all we have to do is walk faithfully in the truth of his promises in spite of what the generations before us have done, in spite of what everything else has happened around us. We go to Isaiah chapter 1, this week's Haftarah. Isaiah chapter 1, uh, he begins by uh, uh, kind of getting on to Israel's case. Listen, heavens and hear earth. Verse 2, for Adonai has spoken, sons I have raised up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oy, a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons dealing corruptly. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised Israel's holy one. They have turned backwards. Where will you be struck again as you stray away more and more? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Verse 11, for what is it to me? The multitudes of your sacrifices, says Adonai, uh, says Adonai, for I, I, I am full of burnt offerings and rams and fat of fed animals. I have no delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or, or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand, trampling my court? Now, we recognize the Lord did require sacrifices. But what he's talking about is the heart isn't in the sacrifice. We're making these sacrifices because we have to, not because it's an act of service and worship before the Lord. And he continues on to say uh, that uh, he's going to uh, 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 find the offerings worthless. And uh, the incense is an abomination. I mean, new moon and Shabbat, the calling and convocation that cannot endure it. Iniquity in solemn assembly, with solemn assembly, your new moons and your festivals, my soul hates they are a burden to me. I am weary to bear them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you multiply prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full with blood. But then he moves on. Verse 16. Because every message in Isaiah of condemnation immediately is followed with a reminder of God's forgiveness, of his love, of his renewal, of his desire for repentance on our behalf. Verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, 
You will be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. Verse 24, Therefore says the Lord, Adonai Zavod, the mighty one of Israel, Oi, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Then I will turn my hand on you, purge away your dross, and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at first, your counselors as at the start. Afterward, you will be called city of righteousness, faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her repentance with righteousness. The Lord says, I will bring you back to me. I will restore you. I will make you what I called you to be in the first place. I will make you my love, my bride, the one that I have desired from the very beginning, from the very foundation. Notice here in Isaiah, there's this message of condemnation immediately followed by a call to repentance, a promise of restoration and renewal, a promise of redemption, a promise of God's love. Again, God promises and all we have to do is to take possession of it. God has promised redemption and salvation. He has promised renewal. He has promised freedom from the enemy's grip. He has promised over and over and over again. And all we have to do is learn from the mistakes of our past and take possession of God's promises that are already there. Freedom from the enemy's grip in our life has already been provided. You realize this, right? It has already been provided. It's there. We just have to take possession of it. That is a promise that was fulfilled in Messiah. His blood was poured out that the enemy could no longer have control and grip in our lives. And yet we still give the enemy control and grip as opposed to trusting in the promise and faithfulness of our Lord. In John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he trims so that it may, be, it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. A promise from Yeshua, a promise from the Lord. The branch cannot itself produce fruit unless it abides in the vine. Likewise, you cannot produce fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and is dried up. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. A lot of people like to take that out of context and contort it, right? And even we ask, the Lord will give to us. Go back a little bit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. You know why he says that? Because if we abide in him and he abides in us, what we wish is what he wants. And it's already ours. Let that sink in for a minute. In this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love again. Over and over and over again, we see this message in the scriptures to take possession of the promises the Lord has already given us. If he abides in us and we abide in his word, then we will already have what we wish for because what we wish for will be what he wants. And what he wants is for us to walk in the fullness of his promises. What he wants is for us to walk in the full fullness of his faithfulness to us. 
What he wants is for us to walk in the fullness of his salvation. What he wants is for us to walk in the fullness of the freedom that can be only found in Messiah. What he wants is for us to align our lives entirely with him. The first generation of Israel had done that when we left Egypt. We would have never been in half the scenarios we found ourselves in. If we had simply taken the promises of God as God commanded us to do, we would have never found ourselves wandering for 40 years and having to die out an entire generation in the wilderness. We would have never found ourselves with dealing with a golden calf, uh, although we probably would have because it happened before the spies. But nonetheless, if we had simply, truly, wholeheartedly turned our hearts to lives, even the golden calf wouldn't have happened. Because we would have heard the words of God at Mount Sinai and our hearts would have been rent and, for, uh, and, and, and passion for him. But instead we turn our back on him. And Hebrews tells us five different times in the book of Hebrews not to make the mistakes of our forefathers that uh, were made in Israel. Not to make the mistakes of our forefathers in terms of turning our back on the Lord. Because we have found salvation in Yeshua and we cannot afford to turn our back on that. Five different times we are uh, called, and including uh, one of the suggested readings for this week, five different times we are called in the book of Hebrews by the author of Hebrews to not turn our back on our relationship with the Lord and on what he has done for us. Um, as we look at Tishbab, as we look at the ninth of Ab, it's really important for us to understand uh, that that message in Isaiah 1, that that message is so vitally important to what we're looking at when we're dealing with Tishbab. Because that message is a promise of restoration. And in spite of all of the really bad things that occurred on Tisha B'Av throughout the history of Israel and the Jewish people, something phenomenally tremendous also occurred on Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av, we read about it in Luke chapter 3 and 4 and Matthew chapter 3 and 4. On Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, is the exact day that Yeshua Mashiach was immersed in the Yardin and the Jordan River by Yochanan Hamadil by John the Immerser. Tisha B'Av is the exact day that he was immersed in the waters of the Jordan, beginning his ministry. And a lot of people go, oh, but, you know, his ministry began with the miracle of the water to wine, or it began with this, or began... No, his ministry began with a very literal act of redemption. He was immersed in the same waters that the spies crossed with an evil report on the same day that they crossed with an evil report. Instead of an evil report about Yeshua, those that were in witness of his immersion instead heard a uh, report of blessing, a promise, a good report from the Lord himself, the divine voice of God coming from heaven. And then on the exact same day, he crossed into the wilderness just as the spies did. And he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. He spent one day for every year that Israel spent in the wilderness for each of the days that the spies spent in the promised land, he redeemed in that time period the mistakes of the first generation of Israel. I'm not talking in the sense of salvation, all right? That's a whole other discussion. But his first act of ministry was a literal act of redemption as he redeemed the mistake of the first generation of Israel. He went into the wilderness, and, and we can look at this and we can see uh, the time frame because how many realize that the responses, he was tempted by the enemy how many times? Three. How many times did he respond? Three times. Did you realize that each of the three responses he gives to the enemy come from the Torah parshot of the next several weeks between uh, uh, Tish B'Av and, uh, and, and Rosh Hashanah? Each of those three responses come from the Torah parshot of this time period. And the Torah parshot were divided out uh, around the time of the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're about just afterwards as we realize, hey, 
the temple was destroyed on Tishbah because we kind of jacked this whole thing up because we turned our back on his word. If we simply make his word a part of our lives, our lives will be different. And so we established the Torah cycle and the Torah parsha were a part of Jewish life for hundreds of years before Yeshua walked on earth in human form, born of a woman. So it's by no coincidence that his responses came from the Parshot at that period of time. When he returns to his hometown in Nazareth, in, in Acts, uh, Matthew 3 and Luke 3, when he returns to his hometown in Nazareth, and he's called to the Bima uh, to make Aliyah, to, to read from the Haftarah, the Haftarah Parsha that he read is from, the Haftarah Parsha that was originally read historically on that day, on that Shabbat, right before Rosh Hashanah. It's by no coincidence the Lord knew what he was doing. He was showing us that the ministry of Yeshua began with an act of redemption. His entire ministry for three plus years, three and a half years, give or take, was bookended by an act of redemption and an ultimate act of redemption. He began and ended his ministry here on earth with acts of redemption. It's a powerful reality. Because the words of Isaiah, I will wash you white as snow, is because he came to redeem the mistakes of our forefathers in the wilderness. So that we can, in fact, in him, walk in the trueness of the word in our lives. So that we can, in fact, walk in the promises of God. So that we can, in fact, walk in the truth of the fullness of redemption and restoration and salvation that can only be found in Messiah Yeshua. Our people right now are preparing their hearts as we, we prepare for the fasting tomorrow for Tishbah, where our people are preparing their hearts uh, in fear and in memorial of the atrocities that occurred globally to the Jewish people on this very day. Whereas if we realized who Messiah is, what Yeshua has in fact done for us, we wouldn't be worried about fear of what could happen. But we'd be looking at this as a reminder of where the Lord has brought us from. Because each of us in our own lives, we all have those Tisha B'Av experiences. We put ourselves in the wrong place. We hurt people's lives. People hurt our lives. We made mistakes. We broke our oaths to the Lord. We broke His word. We walked away from Him, both as believers and before we were believers. Look, don't let us get all toiled around and think that because we have the blood of Messiah in our lives that we suddenly are instantaneously perfect. We're just like the first generation a lot of times. And it's important that we recognize that as we enter this period of time, this time period between Tishbab and Rosh Hashanah is a, a period of introspection as we prepare for uh, Rosh Hashanah and the 10 days of awe leading up to Yom Kippur. This is a time period that we are to look deep into our lives in preparation for the day of atonement, the day of repentance there. Uh, as we build up to it, we're to cleave to the reality of the Lord's promises that he has in fact redeemed and restored us. As we move through the next several weeks, uh, in fact, the next seven weeks, what we will see are seven Haftorah Parshot out of the book of Isaiah, as I said earlier, from basically Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 60. Uh, and they're called the seven messages of consolation because the book of Isaiah as a whole is a book of, uh, of prophecy from the Lord saying, hey, you really messed this one up. I'm going to have to push you out of here and I'll bring you back. Don't worry. And so the consolations, the message of consolation of the Lord saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to make you righteous and holy again. And so over the next seven weeks, 
uh, our message, instead of being focused on the Torah Parsha as it normally is this year, over the next seven weeks, uh, the message in our Shabbat service is going to be focused on these seven messages of consolation. It's going to be focused on these messages of Isaiah that we need to understand and we need to grasp as we come in preparation for the, the High Holy Days for Shoshana and Yom Kippur, recognizing that the Lord has in fact redeemed and restored us and that His promises are ever faithful to us. And we just need to turn back to him and a fullness of faithfulness. So as we close out this message, I want to leave you with four spiritual realities that I think is important for us to grasp from this Parsha, from Parsha Devarim. Uh, first and foremost is to not repeat the mistakes of our past. In particular, the mistakes of our forefathers or our own. Not to repeat the mistakes of our past, to walk in the fullness of the new creation that we are in Messiah Yeshua. Number two, we are not distinct from those who went before us. Notice the second generation is being told about what the first generation messed up on. But Moses doesn't say, hey, you remember what they did. Moses says, here's what you did. So we're not distinct and separate from the, the, those that went before us, our family, our friends, etc., our community. We are not distinct and separate. We are a communal people group. And so we need to understand that the sins of our forefathers can, in fact, and the curses of our forefathers can, in fact, be sins and curses in our lives that need to be dealt with so that we can't continue to make the mistakes of the past. Number three, be strong and courageous in following where God is leading he says it several times in this partial. We read it over and over again through Deuteronomy. We read it numerous times through the book of Joshua. Chazak, be strong and be uh, uh, fearless. Be strong and be courageous and know that I go before you. If the Lord is leading you and is calling, he is already going before you, preparing the way. And number four, believe with your eyes. Trust in God's promises because of what he has already done. And by believe in your eyes, I don't mean like the first generation did when the, the spies said, hey, they're like giants. Because those that died in the wilderness, they didn't see the giants. They're hearing what the evil report was. What I'm talking about is the first generation, what they saw with their eyes was the truth of the promises of God. Because the spies brought back the proof that the land was good and full of milk and honey. That the land was exactly as the Lord said. They should have trusted with their eyes, not with their ears. They should have trusted what was put before them, showing what the Lord was giving them. Not on what others were telling them wasn't really there. So the fourth uh, is to trust uh, or believe what you see with your eyes. Trust in God's promises because of what he has already done. Each of us are here today and our walk with the Lord because the Lord has faithfully brought us through situation after situation, scenario after scenario, problem after problem, many of which we put ourselves in. And yet the Lord's faithfulness is to continue to bring us into newness, continue to bring us into recreation, continue to bring us into the fullness of our relationship with Him. So it's important that we make sure that our eyes are paying attention to what God has done for us, not in what the enemy wants us to think we've done against Him. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful and compassionate God and King. I thank you that you are a Lord who loves your people in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our errors, in spite of our sins, that you love us. 
that you cherish us, and that you want nothing more than for us to come in a fullness of return, of, of uh, teshuvah, of repentance to you, Lord. Father, I thank you that you give us example after example after example in your word from our forefathers uh, that, uh, of what it looks like to return to you, of what it looks like to walk in faithfulness with you, Lord. In spite of all of the examples we see of walking uh, outside of faithfulness, outside of your promises, outside of the truth of your word, Lord, you give us example after example of what it looks like to walk in faithfulness with you. So, Father, I pray that, uh, that, that as Yeshua is the vine and we are the branches, that the vine takes root in our hearts and our lives, Lord. That we, the branches, will be 